In Luke 17, verse 5, the apostles come to Jesus, or I, they don't come to Jesus, they're already with Jesus. They're all together. And the apostles look at Jesus and they say to the Lord, increase our faith, exclamation point, which is like emphatically, desperately, increase our faith. We're in a series uh, which I title Random Thoughts About Jesus. <laughs> um, as I've been reading the Gospels, just uh, I found that I'm, I'm really discouraged right now. Like that's just kind of season I'm in. Um, you know, there, there's a lot going on uh, in our church. Um, a lot of burdens, a lot of brokenness, a lot of mistakes. There's a lot going on in, in our life, a lot of just me bombing and failing. And there are moments, there, there are these things that are happening in our church that you might not even be aware of, and, that, and that's fine. But there are people who are in such desperate need, people who I'm just running into out in the world, and in, even in my own life, where I'm like, God, I, I, I need you. Like, I need you to do something because I, I can't fix this thing. I, I don't know how to make this work. I don't know how to bring this person to Jesus. I don't know. I, I, I need a miracle, you know? Like, I need you because I can't. And so it's in these moments where I just resonate with this line from the disciples that says, Lord, increase our faith. We need you to do something. You ever been there? There are groups... um, we call them Pentecostals, Charismatics. We don't have like regular TV. They used to have TV channels. I don't know, maybe they still do, where these guys like stand there and preach all the time. They hinge their whole theology on the next verse. Lord, increase our faith. The apostles plead. And Jesus says, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, which is pretty small, right? Uh, like, like minusculely small, like, like granular sized small. If you had faith that's the size of the, the grain of the mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. That's ridiculous. I mean, imagine that for a moment. You have superpowers of faith. And like the like, like Jedi force, you, you, you say, mulberry tree, be uprooted, and it sort of like levitates, or maybe it you know, beams or something. And then all of a sudden, because that's the sound it makes, it ends up in the bottom of the ocean, in the silt, and the waves are rolling over it, and it's fine. You, we have a word for that. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. If you have faith the size of the mustard seed, and you can do that, please, please do not start uprooting mulberry trees and planting them. People need healing, Right? So what should shock us about this is how nonsensical it is. What is Jesus' point here? Is his point here that if you had faith the size of the mustard seed, you could call down lexuses from the sky and they would just start dropping. You could, you could heal people or swing your coat at them and they all fall down. Like, what does this mean? What does this mean? Well, You have to keep in mind that Jesus is a lover of nonsense. He's a king 
of using nonsense to teach us things. You ever had a speck of sawdust in your eye? You ever get any eyelash in your eye, anything like that? Thank you, my daughter. <laughs> and what do you do when you get that in your eye? I, like, you're doing everything. Cry, yeah. <laughs> You're doing everything you can to get that thing out, right? I mean, you got it open, you're poking at it, you're dropping water in it, you're in the bathroom looking. I mean, you do everything you can to get that speck out. This speck is terrible. It's a terrible thing to have in your eye. And Jesus says you're willing to, to do anything to get the speck out of your brother's eye, but what do you have in your own? A play, two by four, right? It's, it's sticking out of your... I mean, that's ridiculous. Ridiculous. In that same sermon, Jesus says, Blessed Happy, that's what blessed means, happy. Happy are those who are persecuted. If you're persecuted, they beat you, they put you in jail, they take away whatever. Are you happy? Happy are the meek, because they get what? The earth. Well, I don't know if you've looked around lately, but no one in Congress seems very meek to me. None of those people who are in Hollywood seem very meek to me. In fact, Jesus says, listen, if you want to have a position in my kingdom, in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven and and, and Matthew means the same thing as kingdom of God elsewhere, kingdom of God, if you want a high position, what should you do? Take the life and position of a lowly child. That's not how positions work, right? If you want high positions, what do you do? Take high positions. Children don't get high positions, We yell at them and tell them to stop. Can I get a witness, kids? Right? I mean, right? Jesus is using nonsensical things to shake us because our eyesight is so poor. Our understanding is completely the antithesis of God's understanding. When God looks at the world, he sees and desires something that we do not see nor desire. Nor desire. That's a powerful truth. So as we look at this text, it is imperative that we recognize that's what's going on here. The apostles in this text seem to be speaking specifically about the mental assent aspect of faith. There is a point in faith where you have to believe something. Correct? With me? You've got to believe something about God. Is Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God? And you say, ideally, yes, amen, anything like that. Right? That is mentalist, and I agree with that proposition. The disciples seem to be asking that. They seem to be forgetting their own scriptures. If you remember well with me, the Jews would had a confession of faith. Our confession of faith is, is do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Uh, Their confession was, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then it goes on. You might know, you might not know, but the word to hear is a a double meaning word. It means hear or obey. In fact, it often means both scrunched into one. As those of you who are parents well know, you say to your child, Did you hear what I say? And they said, Yeah, we're just not doing it, right? We're working very hard to get our children to recognize when I tell you to do something, I'm expecting you, children, Connor, I'm looking at you, buddy, to do it, right? To hear is to obey. And Jesus is trying to pull that out of the disciples, too. He's trying to pull that out of the disciples, too. 
In fact, I would, um, there's this great little quote by Nietzsche. Everybody know who Nietzsche is? He's that uh, famous philosopher, that God is dead guy. He wrote this really great quote that uh, uh, an author um, in a book called, of the title, um, Eugene Peterson wrote, uh, and he calls faith, calls faith this, a long obedience in the same direction. I love that. That's really been sitting on my mind just for the past few weeks as I've been reading through the Gospels, a long obedience in the same direction. And if I could call uh, the sermon anything, it would probably be that. I think I did call it that. I did. Congratulations. I want you to notice something important about what it is we have going on in this text, something that is very often an error that we make um, as we read our Bibles. We drop into the Scripture... And that often means that we're not looking at the whole context of Scripture. So I want to take you through the whole context of Scripture, and then we're going to read some more here. But I want you to notice that this text actually begins in chapter 17, verse 1. And Jesus said to his disciples, you've got to look at your Bibles for this. And Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are going to come. So Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Then notice verse 5. The apostles... Say to the Lord. So they answer back. So Jesus speaks and they answer back. Then verse 7. Will any one of you who has it? So Jesus is now responding. This is in connection with the same verse we have in verse 6. And the Lord says to them. And that paragraph, I know it's broken up, especially if you're using the Pew Bible. We've got these little handy dandy helpers right here that are block texts. Um, which are meant to help us kind of find things in the Bible. But sometimes make us think that Jesus has now moved on to a new topic. Not so, little Padawan learners. Not so. What do we look for to see Jesus moving on? We look for a change of scenery. Anybody ever go see a play? Yes. Okay, thank you. Some cultural awareness here. I was, was worried there for a moment. I liked doing play. I was in, you know, in plays in high school. Not musicals because they're awful and of the devil. But plays. And you know that... You know that... <laughs> Chelsea was personally offended. <laughs> Deeply. Jordan. You should have heard it. That was awesome. What you know in a play, be it a musical or a play, you know that a new scene happens because new characters enter and the conversation shifts or they drop the curtain and they raise it up again and there's a new scene. There's new scenery around. And we get that there in verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he, being Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Right? Set change. Right? So what do we have? We have verses 1 through verse 10 is all one unit. One story, one encounter, one pericope, whatever you want to call it. Right? It is one encounter. It's important that we get that before we start pulling grains and mustard seeds out and start dropping mulberry bushes into the ocean. Context, as we say, is king. Paying attention to what comes before and what comes after. So... What happens in this section? Look at verse 1. Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, Temptations to sin are sure to come. Nothing new in the world, guys. I don't care what they put on TV. Nothing new in the world. Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him or her if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Let's spend a little moment there. 
A millstone is a big stone that you put grain under and you put these stones together and you spin it and it crushes the grain into fine flour. So what is a millstone? A big heavy rock. You ever see those old mobster movies and they're like going to tie somebody up and they put cement, cement around their feet or a brick or something like that? It's the same kind of idea. Jesus says it would be better for you to have something chained around your neck and tossed into the ocean than for you to cause one of my disciples, that's what little ones means, doesn't mean just children, but anyone who follows Jesus, than to cause somebody who is following Jesus to stumble or to sin. Hell is a big controversy. I'm going to pause on a soapbox of my own choosing for a moment. Hell is a big controversial issue right now. And I get that the, the push is to see Jesus as kind of this nice, fluffy, frilly kind of guy. And that there's lots of arguments about hell and eternity and things like that. And let's just set all that aside for a moment. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying if you cause someone to sin, it's better for you to be drowned in the ocean. I don't know what judgment's going to look like. When it all shakes down, we have images of images of images. We're like three steps back from understanding the completeness of God's judgment. But whatever it is, it's better that you drown before you sin because judgment will be that harsh. That's a reality that we have to reckon with. That's Jesus speaking. That's your, if you got red letter, anybody got a red letter Bible? That's red letters right there. Jesus speaking. And then Jesus makes it worse, because he always makes it worse. Like, it's like Jesus has this capacity to like drop bombs and then drop bigger ones. He says, if your brother sins, so this is the person who like, should be worried about getting the millstone around their neck and tossed in the sea, right? This brother sins against you. So somebody, a brother, a sister, a wife, a child, a neighbor, a church member, whoever, right? This person sins against you, rebuke him. Don't pat him on the back and say, it's okay, it's just who you are. Don't pat him on the back and say, well, boys will be boys. Don't pat him on the back and say, well, everybody makes mistakes. Everybody does make mistakes. But first you need to know it's a mistake. Right? Rebuke them. Stop it. Say that is what we call sin. And you better not do it. Because if you do it, rewind to just the earlier point I just made, right? And if that person sins against you, so he makes it real personal. This is against Jordan. You sin against Jordan. You sin against Gwen, you sin against Scott, you sin against uh, Trazzle, you sin against whoever. If that person repents, forgive them. Oh, right? Forgive them. What does forgive them mean? You don't get to hold it over their head. You don't get to bring it up in conversation. The next time you have a fight, doesn't come up. The next time they make a mistake, you don't say, yeah, well, I knew that was going to happen. Forgiveness is what we see in the cross. Forgiveness is the complete and complete and complete reconciliation of the person to Jesus Christ who has forgiven all things through his own blood. That is the image of forgiveness that we, the church, are to bear out in our personal relationships. Forgiveness. If that person sins against you seven times in one day. Now this doesn't mean, because i got to make this caveat, does not mean that you're ticking it off and there it is. Oh, number eight, baby. 
It doesn't mean that. Seven is a symbol uh, numerically of divine perfection. You are to forgive perfectly just as your heavenly father forgives you perfectly. I feel guilty. (laughs) Right? Like that's heavy stuff. So it makes sense then in verse 5 that what? The apostles say, Lord, increase our faith. Lord, how is this? Lord, how can we live this out? Lord, what? You're asking too much, Jesus. Help us. Lord, increase our faith. And Jesus then gives them this, this nonsense answer. If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, I want to push against the prevailing wisdom and just say, I think most of you probably have faith the size of a mustard seed. Like, faith the size of a mustard seed is like, like, you came to church this morning because you think something might happen here. You think God might be real. Like, Jesus, I don't think here is trying to say, and here you are, guys, super powered and ready to go because you have the faith of the mustard seed. I think what he's saying here is faith is not the issue I'm talking about. This is not the purpose of this conversation. Faith is not the problem here. The problem for most Christians the problem for most non the problem for most all of us is not, do you believe, do you have faith? The problem is obedience. You walk around town today and ask people, do you believe in God? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that the Bible is a good book that you can learn things from that will point you toward God? I guarantee you, you will get a lot of yeses. But if you ask them the question, what signals that you obey God? That's a tougher question, isn't it? Jesus uh, continues this thought. He gives, an, he gives this point. He gives this r- really weird, bizarre, nonsensical statement. And then he moves into verse 7 and says, Will any of you who has a servant or a slave plowing or keeping sheep, so you've got a servant, and they're out in the field doing their day job, Imagine that. They're out there doing their day job. And they come in from, uh, from coming out of the field. And will you, that master say to them, come at once and recline at the table. You've worked a long day. I saw you out there working hard, man. Just come on in and take a seat. Let me make dinner for you. Is that what masters do? Is that what, put masters aside. Do any of your bosses act that way? Right? That's not how it works. How does it work? The master says to the slave, prepare supper for me. What are you doing? Get dressed, clean yourself up, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward then you can eat and drink. And does the, does the master then thank the servant and say, wow, that was really great. Thank you so much for working today, and thank you so much for making dinner, and you're just going above your boss to that? No. Now here comes the double stab of Jesus. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say this. We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. You can understand why there were moments where Jesus had assembled a great crowd around him, where he would do great miracles, he would feed people, he would 
raise the dead. He would um, heal the lepers. And people began to crowd around him. This guy's got food. This guy is healing us. This guy is doing all of this amazing miracles. And, and, and then Jesus starts to teach. And the crowd thins out. Because this is a hard word. I want to suggest to you this morning that my problem and your problem is not faith. My problem and your problem is that we have lost sight of who we are. We are servants of God. Our problem is not faith. Our problem is obedience. Our problem is that God says do this and we don't do it. God says go here and we don't go. God says don't do this and we do it. The problem in our day is not faith and it isn't grace and it isn't mercy. It is that the church has stopped obeying God. Because we say to God, this is our perspective, this is our way, this is our world. When Jesus says, what do you need to understand about the way the world works? God is king and you are his subjects. And there's nothing less American than that, right? You've grown up your whole life being told, you're not a subject Follow your heart. Do what you want. Your voice matters. Your vote counts. And that's all true in American politics and American life. Fine, fine, fine. It doesn't mean squat to God. God is sovereign king of glory over all of the cosmos. And by his great and immense and innumerable graces, he has poured that out willingly of himself onto you And our problem today is we presuppose, we presume on God's grace. We presume on his favor. We presume on his mercy. We say God will always and always and always. And there comes a day where God no longer. Most of our problems could be fixed with that. Very perspective. If we ask that question this morning, what signals that you're a servant of God? I mean, there are things that signal that you're Christian. One, you're here today. Congratulations, you're like 50% there. (laughs) Other times it's crosses, other times it's Songs that you sing, maybe it's the CDs in your car. All these things are good things. But what signals in your day-to-day life, what signals Monday morning, what signals Tuesday evening, what signals Wednesday night, what signals Thursday at lunch, what signals when you're having your planning out of the weekend, what signals that you are a slave to God? What signals when you... Swipe that credit card. What signals when you choose what you're going to buy at the store? What signals when you're making a decision about where to to live, what house to buy, what car to get? What signals that you are a slave of God? That's a question. There's some simple solutions, some things that I think we've forgotten. We've forgotten in our family. We were deep into family worship. We did almost, we, we did... A few years, we just every, not every, that's too much, but most often we had family worship. 
And we just sort of let that go over the past several months. And I'm not sure what happened. Laziness, I think. Laziness. I think God's going to one day look at me and say, you were far too lazy. Family worship. Get together with your family. I don't care how young your kids are. Drag them together and you spend five minutes and you all look to God. And if you don't know how to do that, if you're like, man, I don't know how to make that happen. I don't have the resources for that. Please call me, text me, email me, tweet me, Instagram me, Snapchat me. I got this thing called Peach. I don't know how to use it. My, big, my kid sister hasn't shown me. I can't figure it out. And so, I mean, that signals I'm moving into middle age. I get that. But I have that. If I've forgotten some mode of getting a hold of me, then let me, I, I, then I guess you're off the hook. <laughs> I forgot to say, you're off the, but I, I would love to talk. I would love for somebody, for a family to say, listen, we want to worship God as often as we can in our house. And I want our kids for those, what was it, 500 and something odd weeks? For those 500 weeks. At, at church, you, you come once or twice a month. Like, that's, that's that window that we get to share Jesus with your kids in our youth ministries. You have every single day, every single day, to talk about Jesus with your kids, to worship Jesus with your kids. Personal piety. I, for crying out loud, listen to the Bible. Turn on scripture in your car. I mean, there's so many ways that we have that they didn't have in generations past, worshiping God has never been easier, and we've never done it less. Concern for the church, plugging in and loving one another, developing relationships. And many of you guys do this, and I love it. I see it. There's a group um, that goes out. There's several groups, actually, that go out to lunch after church every Sunday. And, and, and uh, you know, I, I don't know what they talk about, but I love just to see people together. Like, I just love seeing Christians Getting together because that's how we learn how to bear one another's burdens and how to pray and how to suffer with one another and how to put up with one another. You're going to be together for eternity, right? This is a common joke, but you're going to be together for eternity. You've got to learn how to put up with each other. Let's start now. Love for your enemies. Blessing those who persecute you. Nothing signals an enemy at work or at school that there is something different than you. There's nothing that signals somebody on Facebook or Instagram, or Snapchat, whatever, or Twitter, that there's something different about you than when you answer anger, hostility, and stupid ideas with grace. So as we wrap this heavy stuff up, I want to give you a few tools, a few applications I I want to encourage you to be about this morning. And the first is to embrace these things. And I want to embrace obedience as a gift. We have been told by our society, and this is only going to increase, you've been told that obedience to God, obedience to anything is, is a mistake. It's a curse. It's slavery. It's, 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 it's awful. And in a sense, it is slavery. We are slaves to righteousness, right? This is not a curse. This is a good thing. God made this beautiful, wonderful world. He brought man and woman together and he said, enjoy one another and enjoy this world. And I'm going to place boundaries because running in the street is a bad idea. I don't care if it's fun or not. It's a bad idea. 
And too frequently as humans, what we have been saying and what we are saying to God is, I will not subject myself to you. And God, out of his great mercy, is apparently allowing us to not subject ourselves to him and to run around like fools. And that's what we're doing, taking full opportunity of it. And what I want to encourage you today is to recognize that obedience to God is not a curse. It is a gift. It protects. It preserves. It enlivens. There is nothing greater than being close to God, walking in holiness, and knowing that there is no guilt in you because you are not the sinner that we talked about earlier. That's a gift. That's beautiful. Answering your enemy who brings hate or dumb ideas or things you disagree with, with a word of grace, is beautiful. Commitment to your marriage for life is beautiful. Weathering those hard times is beautiful. And what the world has to offer you outside of the obedience written in God's word is nothing but paltry, passing Fancies that have no root and no eternal glory. And today you have to choose. And tomorrow you have to choose. And Tuesday you have to choose. Will you seek eternal glory or will you seek cheap hobbies? Cheap things. Cheap relationships. Cheap commitments. People with deep convictions, they're hard to come by. People that go with the flow, go with the world, go with whatever's good, they're easy. And I want a church full of people of deep convictions. I want to see a church that stands like a rock while the world is blowing this way. I mean, it's bonkers out there, isn't it? Isn't it bonkers out there? And it's going to change tomorrow and be more bonkery. Like, it's, it's, the bonkerness is not going to stop. It's going to continue. And it's going to go this way and it's going to go that way. It's going to be all over the place. But the church of God is rooted on the rock of Jesus Christ. That's glory. That's glory. There's beauty in embracing obedience to God. A beauty that you cannot get any other, any other way. I want you to see that as a mystery. I want you to embrace this as a mystery. Far too often, we, we get caught up and we lose sight of the fact that, that Jesus is able to do weird things like pick up mulberry bushes and plant them in the sea. If Jesus said, I think I'll do that today, I'd say, oh, well, that, all right, let's see. Let's see it go down. Because God can do amazing things. But it always begins with obedience. The great mystery of God's grace, the great mystery of God's power, the great, great mystery of the faith, the great mysteries that have been laid before you. These things are deep. These things are deep. And they are lasting. And they are true. And that brings us to the last piece, to embrace that as the long direction. We are in a society of cheap things made in China. Right? Right? Cheap things. We're, we, we're living brave new world. If it breaks, you buy a new one, right? Because we don't fix things. It costs too much money. We're used to getting that instant gratification, right? I want now. Relationships don't happen like now. Things that need fixing don't happen like now. It's a long obedience. It is a long, long obedience 
of striving to follow God. It took me a long time to get to know my wife, 13 years, and and we're still learning about one another. We're still growing in our relationship. We're still fighting some of the same fights, (laughs) arguing some of the same arguments, right? You You can't do that like now. It is the long obedience. And there is no in, there is no, if there's no consistency, that long obedience doesn't take hold. You're sort of restarting and restarting. Like if you walk with God on Sunday and then Monday you fall off and then Tuesday you're back at it a little bit and Wednesday you're doing this like two steps forward, three steps back thing. The long obedience has to be consistent obedience. You have to decide I'm going to follow Jesus and I am not going to give up. I am not going to shrink back It doesn't mean you don't make mistakes. It doesn't mean you stumble and fall. I'm not saying that. I know that we're all imperfect. But I'm saying you are deciding, I am going to take this walk, and I will not turn back. Remember what Jesus said? He said, those who turn back, they're not worthy of me. It's those who set their face toward the cross and pursue it with increasing vigor that God can look at one day and say, well done, good and faithful servant. That we can look at as a church and say, man, look at that person. Like, I know, you know, I know that, that things aren't going well here, but look at this person who has fought through, and they're a shining example of God's power and glory, of the long obedience in the same direction, of the God of mystery and grace, of the God who is king, of the God whom we serve. That, that is beautiful. And that's what I call you to this morning. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and forevermore. Amen. If you need to repent this morning, I encourage you if you need prayer, you need to make a public repentance as sometimes needs to happen, I invite you to come forward that we can pray over you, that we can walk with you. If you don't know Jesus and have never been saved, We invite you to come forward as our elders will be down front to be with you, to pray with you, to talk with you. Whatever it is you need to change, I call you to do it today as we give glory to God. Let's stand and sing.